You're listening to the Violence Design Lab podcast, episode 9. Welcome to the Violence Design Lab podcast. Now here's the mad scientist himself, David Barefoot. Greetings and welcome back. David here. Hey, it's been just over one month since this podcast launched, and it's already had over 700 downloads. That is amazing and humbling, and I really appreciate your support. One of the best ways you can show support for the podcast, if you're enjoying it, is to take a minute to review it on iTunes or Stitcher, and give me a five-star rating like, like Mako did on Stitcher. He said, unique topic. I found other podcasts on acting, but nothing else on stage combat or especially fight choreography. Want to hear more? Or like Rick the Fight Guy gave us a five-star on iTunes, said lots to think about. Great episode. And see, reviews like that not only reassure me that I'm not just shouting into the wind here, but they move my feet up the rankings and they help other people find me. So if you could take a minute to review it, that would be fantastic. But the other way that's even easier is just to share uh, the podcast episodes on Facebook, Tell your friends and just uh, talk it up. I really appreciate it. It helps me uh, continue to, to grow the podcast and our audience base. So this week's episode is the final installment in a three-part series called Crafting the Compelling Fight. So last week, I gave you an inspiration tool I call Finding the Difference. This week, I want to discuss one of the ways that being a violence designer can go beyond just fight choreography, that we can rise above the level of being a craftsman or craftswoman and become creators and artists. I'm talking about finding freedom from stage directions. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, so this episode is probably going to be longer than my normal 15 minutes or so. So you're going to get your money's worth. Oh, wait. I don't charge you. What a deal. All right. I, I, by the way, I do summarize all the tips in this information-packed episode in a short PDF reference sheet. I, I know people like the ability to listen to the podcast on the train or when they're working out or driving, but knowing that you're not going to miss the information because you can't take notes while you're listening. So to get the freebie, just type violencedesignlab.com slash forward slash nine download. Okay, without any further ado, let's get to the topic of stage directions. Now, if you're going to free yourself from something, you'd better know what that thing is in the first place. Stage directions are those descriptions in a script that aren't lines that a character says. They're not something that's ever read aloud except like at the first read-through. In a modern script layout, they're usually italicized and bracketed by parentheses. They're there are two major kinds of stage directions, in-line and indented. In-line stage directions are contained within a line of dialogue, thus the name, and they usually describe how an actor is supposed to say that particular line. For example, the line, what do you mean, can be delivered in any number of ways. So sometimes a playwright includes an in-line stage direction that says, angrily, or whatever, so the actor knows that a line is supposed to be said like, what do you mean, or something like that. By the way, never act like me. I'm, I'm a fight guy. I don't, I don't act. Now, the other kind of stage directions are indented stage directions. Now, these guys are set apart from the dialogue, and they're placed at the top of the scene or between lines of dialogue. They have two major functions. The first one is they're a description of the visual stage picture. These are there to give the reader or director and actors some idea of how to imagine this play 
if it was actually being staged. That kind of description is often placed at the top of the scene. You know, one might say, At rise, Bobby sits on a stained and threadbare couch. He's mid-forties and just as dilapidated as the squalid apartment that surrounds him. Upstage is an open door, revealing a toilet that would make a truck stop restroom seem pristine by comparison. And that they just sort of give you a feel for what you would be looking at as an audience member. The second function of stage directions is to describe physical actions that the characters are doing, but not necessarily talking about while they're doing it. To continue the example of our our fictitious play, it might read, Bobby erupts with anger and swings a wild punch that knocks Eddie down. Eddie crashes onto the coffee table, which collapses under his weight. So this would be an important moment in the scene and would be obvious visually to an audience member watching the show, but... It would be unnecessary and, frankly, a bit weird if Eddie then said, Wow, Bobby, your wild punch knocked me onto the coffee table. Sorry I broke it. So it's easier to show that than tell, like they always uh, mention when you're talking about playwriting, show, don't tell. The stage directions are just a way of showing you what is going on on stage that isn't being spoken about. Now, these kind of stage directions, these second, these descriptions of physical actions, these are where the violence designer lives and breathes. We often scan through a script looking for those two magical italic words, they fight. Or the director shows us uh, the Bobby Eddie coffee table scene and goes, can, can, this, can, can we do this? And we're all, dude, I can totally stage that. But... But, danger, danger, Will Robinson, stage directions can be extremely useful, but it's dangerous to just take them at face value and follow them mindlessly. I want to give you four things to consider relating to stage directions. Number one, what is their source? Number two, what is their scope? Three, what is the surrounding conflict? And four, what happens if I shift them? By now, you probably know my MO. If you're listening to this while you're in your car or whatever, you can go to the website and uh, get the, the, the resource that will compile these all together in a sort of a note sheet for you. You can either do violencedesignlab.com slash 9download or just go to the website and click the resources tab on the menu bar and that'll, that'll get you everything of all the uh, previous uh, freebie content. So let's jump right in. Okay, what is their source? Now... It's easy to assume that stage directions are direct instructions passed down from on high by the playwright, and sometimes that is the case. Many modern playwrights do write their own stage directions. However, some of these stage directions can also be entered into the text at the time of the publishing of the script. And these are literally taken from the stage manager's blocking notes from the first notable production of the play. This often occurs... um, with big dramatic publishing houses like like Samuel French in New York, you can expect to see these kinds of late edition stage directions when the script dependencies include like a, a ground plan of the set or a costume and prop list and sometimes even light cues. When you see all that material, it's probably not from the playwright. The publisher was trying to literally document everything about the initial production, and they often insert additional stage directions into the text to help future readers be able to visualize the performance or to replicate it. Sometimes, of course, the playwright was heavily involved with his premiere production, so these additions represent the collaboration between the author and uh, the production team, but 
Sometimes the author had really no involvement with production that's detailed in the script, or was there but only played a limited role. Either way, though, the specifics of one production, they likely don't apply directly to the production you're going to be working on, since every theater is different, your actors and your director will be different, etc. So, these original production stage directions, well, they're not gospel that you have to obey unless they work for you. I mean, now, stage directions that you believe are supplied by the playwright, they typically have a bit more weight, but again, every production is different, and some may simply not be applicable to your situation. In point of fact, I've written a couple of plays, some that actually involve violence, and when we have produced these plays and gone to stage them, very often I've thrown out my own stage direction because they don't fit the realities of the production that we're using, which kind of baffles the actors. They're like, but it says I do this. I said, yeah, yeah, that was that was the playwright talking. They're like, you're the playwright. Well, I was, but when I'm wearing that different hat as a violence designer, or even as a director, I have to look at the what I actually have in the production and see whether these stage directions fit or not. Now, the next thing to consider with stage directions is what is their scope. By, by this, I mean how... How detailed and in-depth do the directions go? Are they terse like the they fight that shows up in many Shakespeare plays? Or are they dissertations like, like George Bernard Shaw would write? Like here's, here's one describing a character from The Devil's Disciple. Here we go. I quote, Mrs. Dudgeon is an elderly matron who has worked hard and got nothing by it except an unquestioned reputation for piety and respectability among her neighbors, to whom drink and debauchery are still so much more tempting than religion and rectitude that they conceive goodness simply as self-denial. This conception is easily extended to others and finally generalized as covering anything disagreeable. So Mrs. Dudgeon, being exceedingly disagreeable, is held to be exceedingly good. Unquote. Whew. So, from all that social commentary in there, we take away she's elderly and disagreeable. Thanks, George. But some modern playwrights will be just that verbose when they describe their violence. I, I think it comes from modern authors growing up on a diet of film and TV, and they're kind of trying to describe the movie playing in their head. Now, these playwrights don't just indicate the plot points that have to happen in the fight. They're trying to choreograph it for you. The thing is, some of them aren't very good at designing effective violence. I mean, it's not their job. Yes, yes, of course, a fight is a story. But designing a fight is a different skill set than playwriting. So there are times when you need to look at a lengthy, detailed description of a fight and kind of tease out what really needs to happen to allow the story to move forward, what plot points must take place uh, for the play's story to make sense. I mean, a playwright can write a paragraph-long description of a rapier fight when the violence designer only needs they fight again. In the struggle, Hamlet and Laertes exchange rapiers, and Laertes is struck with the poison weapon. See, everything else in a description that you might get for that very moment in, in theater is just somebody else's choreography. Now, presumably, you got into violence design because you like doing choreography and you have some strong ideas about how it should go. Now, one of the side problems that you might run into with these highly specific stage directions is that the images in the description sometimes get stuck in the director's head. 
and she or he expects that that exact narration is going to play out on stage in your choreography. Now, if you're okay with that, well, great. But if not, you may need to negotiate a bit to manage their expectations or discuss the reason you want to change. In the future, I'm probably going to do a whole episode on talking with directors, including how to address taking a a strong left turn from the stage directions. Okay, so we've talked about the source and the scope of the stage directions. Now I want to discuss the surrounding conflict, meaning where the stage directions are placed in the scene with the violence. See, playwrights often use these stage directions, as we said, to describe the non-verbal physicality of character confrontation, and they have to stick the directions in the script somewhere. But here's the problem. Actors and directors think the fight starts where the stage direction says it does. Now, it's understandable why this happens. After all, most scenes with violence have an exchange of lines between two or more characters in conflict, and then the stage directions clearly indicate they fight, they draw their swords, or Martha knocks George unconscious, or whatever. But remember, though, that stage directions about fighting are simply describing conflict that expresses itself physically at a specific moment in the scene. See, playwrights don't spell out when or why character conflict begins. So unless the aggressive character is like clinically psychotic, all fights are going to begin before a fist or a weapon is raised. And honestly, if a character is psychotic, they're acting on some kind of perceived provocation, even if none of the rest of us understand it. A few years ago, I had the pleasure of working with Defunct Theater of Portland in a play called uh, The Boys in the Band by Mark Crowley. It's got a great example of a moment of violence that really starts before the stage directions indicate. The scene has a fight between characters of Alan and Emery while they're at their friend's birthday party. Now, Alan is straight and very close-minded about gay relationships, whereas Emery is very flamboyant, and he's had fun needling Alan throughout the whole scene, just making him so uncomfortable. So here's the exchange. I'll read the dialogue as Alan is about to leave the party. Alan, speaking to his friend Dan, if, if you're ever in Washington, I'd like for you to meet my wife. Emery, yeah, they'd love to meet him. Oh, her. I have such a problem with pronouns. Alan, how many S's are there in the word pronoun? Emery, How'd you like to kiss my ass? That's got two or more S's in it. Alan, how'd you like to blow me? Emery, what's the matter with your wife? She got lockjaw? And at this point, Alan launches into a series of hateful anti-gay epithets that I'm not going to repeat here. And then the stage directions say, pandemonium. Alan beats Emery to the floor before anyone recovers from surprise and reacts. Just after this, the other party guests intervene to pull Alan off the now bloodied Emery. And the scene continues. So at the first fight rehearsal, the actors, you know, who had already been given their basic blocking for the scene, they walked through the moment and then stopped at Alan's explosion, you know, waiting dutifully for me to give them their choreography. Instead, I told them, I want to go back a bit to the point where Emery starts the violence. And the actors, they, they corrected me. They're like, no, 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 Alan is the one who starts the fight. <laughs> and this is one of those moments when your role as the violence expert really needs you to help actors and even directors to better understand the nature of interpersonal conflict. Like in this scene, I mean, Alan is actually saying his, his goodbyes and he's on his way out the door, meaning he's not instigating more conflict with Emery. Emery, though, 
can't resist one more dig. Yeah, you know, they'd love to meet him, her, I have a problem with pronouns. So that line goes Alan to retort back with his next, how'd you like to kiss my ass? Um, you know, and, oh, sorry, Emery says that. Uh, Alan retorts back, then Emery says, how'd you like to kiss my ass? The minute Emery says that line, Emery is choosing to engage in violence. Now, it's true. At this point, the confrontation is verbal, but it's still violence. I mean, telling someone to kiss your ass is as much of an attack as throwing in a punch. And for this, I underline that attack for the audience by having Emery take a single step forward. It was slow, seemingly, you know, casual step, but it sent the message that he was not going to back down. Alan responded in classic locker room fashion, like getting up in Emery's face with his next line. So, so now we have both characters posturing and trying to intimidate the other and showing that they won't back down. And so something has to give. So then Emery, I had Emery push the posturing a bit too far. I coached him to couple his line about Alan's wife having lockjaw with a physical action. He, he carelessly just trailed a single finger down Alan's chest. I mean, that motion did no physical harm to Alan, of course, but it pointed up Alan's discomfort with male-to-male intimacy, and it moved the conflict from purely verbal to physical. And there, Alan immediately knocked Emery back with a shove and then vents his pent-up anger with more brutal attacks until he was restrained by the other guests. So, the lesson from this moment is that the violence in a scene almost always begins many lines before the stage directions indicate. So, stop thinking about character conflict as this discrete entity that is the fight. I mean, physical violence should be the result of continuing emotional violence. Punches and sword thrusts are nothing more than character conflict by another means, to sort of paraphrase Clausewitz. Now, the last way, the fourth way, that I like to engage with stage direction, this one's a little out of the box. I ask myself, what happens if I shift them? In other words, how does it affect the scene artistically if the, the dialogue remains the same, but the fight is moved to a moment in the scene before or after the stage directions indicate? In uh, episode 8, I mentioned a uh, time I choreographed the Scottish play. Well, that production was set in the Caribbean, and it was decided that the magic in that world was real, you know, with the, the witches as witch doctors and, um, and that sort of thing. So I decided that the magic of the witches made Macbeth literally invulnerable, not just super confident in his fighting abilities like you often see. So the director had the three sisters give Mac a charm bag to represent that spell, which he wore openly in the final fight with Macduff. Now, in the text, there's the stage direction they fight. <laughs> just after Macduff says, My voice is in my sword, thou bloodier villain than terms can give thee out. But I, I postponed that action a bit, uh, and and let them continue with Macbeth's next line, Thou losest labor, etc., etc., let fall thy blade on vulnerable crests. And then Macduff runs in. He knocks Macbeth down right in the middle of that speech. And with his weapon, in, in this case it was a machete, he just hacked the Scottish king in the gut several times. Wham, wham. And then Macbeth just fell still and silent. Now, of course, at this point, the audience in the play who's familiar with, with Macbeth is probably wondering, isn't there more lines to say, like, lay on Macduff and all that? But nothing. So Macduff turns his back and walks away victorious. And then Macbeth stands back up. 
<laughs> he he kind of displays the charm bags. I bear a charmed life, etc. And so, to make a long story short, in the next exchange of dialogue that they have, Macduff realizes that that charm bag makes Macbeth completely impervious to harm. And as he continues to struggle with the king, he tears the bag off Macbeth's neck. Macbeth lunges for it, and this time Macduff's machete slices into the king's belly. I mean, like nearly eviscerating him. And then for his last lines, yet I will try the last, etc., etc., lay on Macduff, Macbeth is standing a, a bit apart from, from Macduff. He's mortally wounded here, holding his gut, kind of holding his guts in, wobbling on his feet. And as he says, damn be him that first cries, hold enough, after that, he just collapses dead. Now, the stage directions there indicate that the fight resumes and Macduff chases Macbeth off stage, so I ignored those too. Now, my goal in shifting the stage directions was to keep the scene fresh for the audience and underscore that the magic is real, that theme that's already present in the production. So, it can be really artistically fun to experiment with shifting the fight around a bit. Now, of course, changes like that have a definite dramatic impact on the scene, and you need to discuss them at production meetings or at least one-on-one with the director to get approval before you go really tweaking the the story like that. So, to review, you got to ask yourself four questions regarding stage directions. What is their source? What is their scope? What is the surrounding conflict? And what happens if I shift them? And at the top of the episode, I mentioned the cheat sheet of this episode's information. It's in a handy PDF for your reference. Uh, To get there, visit the website, click the resources link, or go directly by typing violencedesignlab.com forward slash nine download. And uh, as always, if you found this information useful, take a moment to review uh, the podcast on iTunes. Send me uh, uh, Facebook uh, questions or comments on Violence Design uh, Lab on Facebook. You'll find me there. You can also email me, violencedesignlab at gmail.com. I love to hear comments and feedback and any questions you have. If I get enough questions, I may do a question and answer episode in the future. Well, thanks so much. Until next week, keep the fights on stage and peace in your life. David, out. Thanks for listening to the Violence Design Lab podcast. For more tips, tutorials, and downloadable resources, visit us at violencedesignlab.com.